Thank you. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you uh, tonight. And this evening we're continuing our teaching series called the Jesus Manifesto. And if you're here for the first time tonight, tonight we're looking at one verse in a book called Isaiah, in Isaiah 61. And alongside that, we're looking at an account of Jesus' life in Mark's Gospel. And tonight we're going to be looking at how we can play our part in the transformation of society. So let's read these two passages together. Isaiah 61 verse 7 says this. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. And then Mark 1, verses 40 to 45 says this. A man with leprosy came to him, that's Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, can you make me clean? Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. I want to speak today about the two steps to transformation. The vision here at HDB, as I'm sure you will know, is to play our part in the evangelization of the nation, the revitalization of the church, and the transformation of society. But if you're anything like me, as soon as you hear a big vision like that, you think, how on earth could I play a small part in that? How can I use my life, my time, my gifts, my resources to play a part in transforming society? And what we're gonna see in these two passages is that the way you live and talk and pray and speak and act can play a part in transforming the world around you. Your street, your gym, your workplace, your home, your friends, families, colleagues can all be impacted. But sometimes if we're honest, if you're anything like me, we can doubt that we would have such an impact. When time is limited, pressure is high, our attention is stretched. And that's why these two passages we're looking at today are so powerful because they give us two simple steps that will help you and me live a life that brings transformation. And that's what we're gonna look at today, the two steps to transformation. And the first step is to get clear. Hopefully my handwriting is clear enough. Probably not. Get clear. In Isaiah 61, Isaiah is writing uh, to the people of Israel who have just returned from exile. They've, uh, they've been uh, in captivity, but now they're home in a foreign land. Uh, they're enslaved for 70 years. And now they're back in Jerusalem, but it's not how they remembered it. It's different. It needs transforming. But the transformation needed wasn't just about bricks and mortar. It was also about hearts and minds. Israel now, whilst free from physical captivity, were bound by disgrace and shame at what happened to them, their past, the memories of being overthrown by another nation and made captive. And into this moment of paralyzing shame and disgrace, Isaiah gives Israel 
the most amazing promise. Instead of your shame, instead of your disgrace, you will receive a double portion, abundance, blessing in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. He repeats the promise three times in just one verse. Isaiah is saying, Israel, get clear on God's promise. He will replace the shame of captivity and the disgrace of loss with a new level of provision and joy. So what's the content of this promise and how is it relevant to us today? Well, first is a promise of healing. God had called Israel into the most amazing purpose. It was through them that God would bless the world. They were blessed to be a blessing, but they were unable to get past their past. They were, they were paralyzed by shame and disgrace. I'm not sure if you've ever experienced that. I certainly have. I grew up in, in Essex, which before I moved to London, I was very proud of. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you, uh, actually it was God who first came up with the idea of the only way is Essex. Um, the t TV then called up very quickly. But as soon as I moved to London, actually I felt quite ashamed about the fact that I came from Essex. I remember meeting all of you amazing people and thinking, why didn't I come from a place rather smart like Windsor or somewhere else? And then I met someone, a girl called Sophie, who I'm now married to. We were dating for um, a little while, but I remember when I, f I first met her, and she, I just said, you know, tell me more about you. And she listed her background, that she was from Windsor, and she <laughs> went to a very smart boarding school, and she studied theology at Oxford University, and she got a 2-1, which shows the perfect combination of, uh, of, of education and smarts, but also social engagement. And then, to top it all off, she had a job working selling champagne. And of course, the moment in the conversation came where she said, well, Dave, tell me about you. Well, uh, well I'm from a um, kind of a home county uh, outside of London, just near the countryside, and I went to a school in the day. And, um, and then I went to university uh, to study architecture, and that particular university was very good at uh, degrees. And, um, and, and now I live on a, an estate in Clapham, perhaps one of the most dangerous estates uh, in South London. And to my surprise, she was really excited and kind. You know, maybe I was just so different, uh, but I felt ashamed. But it got even worse, because she then said, well, why don't you come and meet my family? So, uh, so the Essex boy went to Windsor, and I entered this room and I soon discovered that I, if I thought Sophie was impressive, her family were even more impressive. It turned out that her sister went to Cambridge, her five uncles went to Cambridge, her cousin went to Cambridge, her grandfather went to Cambridge. <laughs> so here am I, Essex boy in Windsor, with all these people who came from Cambridge, apart from one who was Sophie who went to Oxford. <laughs> and I had to talk through my, my background. I tried so hard not to get on to me, but then eventually they said, well, Dave, I've talked enough. You know, you're so kind to ask me questions, but now tell me about you. <laughs> and I felt so ashamed as I said, well, you know, uh, well, uh, from, you know, just outside near a home, home county uh, in the countryside, kind of went to a, a school in a day, um, studied uh, architecture in a university that was really good at degrees, and now I live on one of the most dangerous states in Clapham. And I felt so ashamed of my story. And guilt is feeling bad about what you've done. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. 
It's that voice that says, no, no, you're, you're, you're not good enough. You could never get that job or land that investment to parent that child, to finish that project, to secure that school, to build that friendship or feel a part of that group. That's shame. It's like carbon monoxide. It kills passion and purpose slowly and silently without you even realizing it. And it causes us to conceal weakness and project strength, to wear a mask in case the other person doesn't like what they see. And that's how I felt until I spoke to Sophie's 90-year-old grandfather, Eaton House Master, Cambridge Scholar, known for testing Sophie's prospective boyfriends by asking them what their school motto was in Latin. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't ask me because I didn't uh, have one. And as he was speaking, I spoke to him, then he spoke to Sophie, and I could overhear him, because you know that people who are 90 tend to whisper quite loudly. And he just said, Sophie, well done, 10 out of 10. <laughs> And suddenly, it was like all this shame that built up within me about my past totally left me. It was like I was free just to be me, to be Dave, to have my story, to hold my story, to, and to look forward to the future with real excitement. And that's what God promised to do for Israel, to free them of their shame and disgrace from the past, to get them past their past so they could be the people of God, blessed to be a blessing, not paralyzed by their past, but projected into their future because of who God's called them to be. So it's a promise of healing, but it's also a promise of hope. And Israel in this moment needed hope because transformation seemed to be taking a long time. It took 70 years for them to get out of captivity. And as they looked at within themselves, the shame, the disgrace, as they looked out to the city, they could see that it would take a long time to transform it. They needed a promise to keep them going. And sometimes you may know that transformation can take place in an instant, but experience tells us that actually transformation can take a long time. And actually you may have experienced that. Moments even now where you are longing for change, longing for transformation, the great reversal, the great change in your life, your health, your work, your friendships, your marriage, your financial situation. And when things don't seem to be changing or improving as quickly as we'd hoped they would, a promise is a great source of hope so that we can keep going and keep persevering. So it's a promise of healing and a promise of hope. And Isaiah is saying to Israel, get clear, get clear on this promise. And the reason why this matters for us is because this promise was not just for Israel but it's for you and for me today. And we're seeing it happen. We're seeing transformation take place in front of our very eyes. This week, I just caught up with a friend of mine who, uh, who just this last year, their marriage has been totally restored after almost getting divorced after six, seven years of being married. Yesterday morning, I'm praying with a friend of mine who had damaged his shoulder. And as we prayed, the pain went. More simply, just talking to a, a friend of mine who did the 21 prayer um, kind of challenge at the start of this term, praying for his boss, difficult relationship with his boss, and just to see how it's improved over the last two months. Two churches were planted from HDB eight weeks ago, and tonight, in nine minutes' time, they both start evening services because they need more space. Yeah. 
And we've experienced this in our, in our own lives. Um, Martin mentioned our son, Archie. And many of you will know our story with him, that when, uh, when we found out we were pregnant, that we soon found out during a scan that he had a cyst on his brain. And after weeks and weeks of further scans and prayer and longing that it would change and would go, nothing happened. Until he was born, um, and uh, we took him for a CT scan where we kind of wrapped him up so he couldn't wiggle, put him into this big cylindrical scanner, and just pray, Lord, please do something for our son. And then uh, the amazing thing is that we got a letter through the post that simply said that the cyst had gone, that he had been totally free from it. Transformation is taking place in front of our very eyes. It's not just true for Israel, but it's true for us today. It's a promise of healing. It's a promise of hope. That's the first step to transformation, to get clear. And the second step is this, to get close. Get clear, get close. As at the start of Mark's gospel, we read about a man who approaches Jesus. We don't know his name, but we know his condition. He had leprosy, a, a term used for many different skin diseases. But here was this man who had lost everything. He hadn't just lost his health, he would have lost his family, his home, his community, his profession. He was completely dehumanized, isolated, and, and forgotten. And as he approached Jesus, Jesus would have known that he was a leper. Lepers had to uh, cover the bottom half of their face. They had to keep their heads unkept. They had to shout as, as they walked anywhere, unclean, unclean. But actually this man went past all the rules. He didn't shout unclean, unclean. He didn't, his hair wasn't unkept. He didn't cover his face. But he walked 50 paces towards Jesus. Back then if you had, if you had leprosy, you had to keep a distance of 50 paces between you and someone who was clean. He didn't pronounce himself unclean. He didn't um, he didn't keep the appropriate distance, but he started to walk those 50 slow, shameful paces towards Jesus. 50, 49, 48, 47. The crowd surrounding Jesus wouldn't have been watching idly. They would have been running away, screaming at him to get back, to get back to the right distance, to return to isolation and obscurity, to maintain the 50 paces. And yet the man keeps walking. 30, 29, 28. 27. And like the crowds, Jesus didn't watch idly. But unlike the crowds, he didn't scream, get back. But he allowed this leper to get close. Five, four, three, just an arm's reach away. Two, one. And as the leper is kneeling in the dirt in front of him, he makes a fascinating statement, which is very easy for us to overlook. He says to Jesus in verse 40, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This statement perfectly sums up our deepest question about transformation. It's the perfect mixture of faith and doubt wrapped up in one sentence. On one hand, the man is certain that Jesus can make him clean. When he uses the word can, it's the same Greek word for dynamite, dynamos. The guy's saying, I know that you can heal me. I know that you have the power to change something, to heal me, to cleanse me. The leper's question is not whether Jesus is able. His question is whether Jesus is willing. Jesus, do you want to heal me? Are you going to heal me? He doesn't doubt the power of Jesus. He doubts the love of Jesus. 
He has no doubt that Jesus can do it, but expresses uncertainty as to whether Jesus will do it. I wonder if you've ever felt that way when you've needed God to transform something in your life. You know that God has the power, but really beneath the surface, your question is whether he's willing. And one of the things that was discovered about lepers in the 1950s was that their fingers and toes would fall off, not as a direct symptom of the disease, but they would they lose feeling in their extremities. They could have their hand in a fire or, or, or cut their toe, but they would never know until it was infected and potentially too late. And in response to this leper's numbness, Jesus brings a whole lot of feeling. Some translations say that Jesus was filled with compassion. Compassion is when someone else is suffering, burns within your own nerves. But actually the word used in our translation is stronger than compassion. It says Jesus was indignant. He was angry, not at the man, not for crossing the 50 paces. He was angry at the disease, at the suffering, at the evil which was spoiling this man's humanity. The leper's suffering flared in the nerves of Jesus. And Jesus looks him in the eyes and says to him, I am willing, be clean. And Mark is saying very clearly that Jesus is never numb to the pain and suffering of the world. He's perfect, he's holy, he's powerful. And Mark wants to add, he is willing. And in his indignation, Jesus says, this is not how the world is meant to be. And when a form of evil or, or suffering rears its head in our lives, and it says to us, what are you gonna do about me? Illness, job loss, marriage blow up, whatever it may be, Jesus is not passive or aloof or far off. He gets close, he sees your suffering, he's indignant and he's willing to do something about it. But the truth is, we don't always see transformation, the transformation that we perhaps long to see. I spend a few hours a week visiting patients in the uh, Royal Marsden Hospital just down the road. And on Monday, I was called in to visit a family whose, whose son, uh, he was also a husband and a brother, uh, had died. I met this man a couple of months ago and had an amazing conversation with him about prayer and Jesus. And, and he had passed away on Monday. And so I was called in to sit at the bedside with this man who passed away, his mother, his brother, and his wife. And I remember thinking, as I was also thinking about this sermon, God, is this what transformation really looks like? Where were you for this man, this wife, this mother, this brother? And sometimes you may have faced that when you just think, Lord, where are you? I, th I thought you were indignant. I thought you were close to my pain or my suffering. And when that happens, when we see that, it's like disappointment can grow within us. And actually, the result is often not indignance, but indifference to pain. It's like we just get used to it and see it and become numb to it because of the experience of our past. But as I was cycling home on, on, from hospital on Monday afternoon, I could just feel, I mean, it was definitely not indifference. It was this deep indignance of what had happened to this man. And just thinking, Lord, I mean, I can't transform these lives, but I know that you can. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna let go of the fact that you can make a difference, that you can transform lives. 
I never want to lose sight or become indifferent to God's promise of transformation. I want to get clear on it and get close to the one who can make the difference. Jesus didn't need to come close to this man. He didn't need to touch him to heal him. He could have healed him from a thousand miles away. Just moments after our passage, he heals a paralyzed man, not by touching him, but by just saying, get up and walk, your sins are forgiven. But he touched this man because he knew that this man had forgotten what it felt like to be loved. Dr. Paul Brand, who spent much of his life working in India with lepers, it was actually him who found out about the, the extremities of those who had leprosy becoming uh, numb. And he was interacting with a man who had leprosy, he damaged his feet so he couldn't stand and was lying down. They didn't speak the same language, and so the only thing he thought to do was to stretch out his hand. And just very gently just placed his hand on this man's chest. And very quickly, this man, tears started to stream from his face. Tears of joy, because it was the first time in years that someone had got close to him, had placed a hand on him, and in doing so said, I see past your suffering, I see past your pain, I see you, I see you as a person. And if we, want to trans, trans, if we want to see transformation in our city, we not only have to get clear on God's promise of transformation, we have, to get, we have to be willing to get close, to get proximate to people and places and systems and structures that need transformation. But how do we do that? What does it mean to get close? Well, Jesus in this passage gives us a very simple model. If you read through Mark's gospel, you will see a pattern that Jesus spends his time in, often in two places, Quiet places on his own and busy places with people. Just moments before meeting the leper, Jesus, even before preaching and teaching, where do we find Jesus? Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, Jesus got up and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Where did Jesus go after he healed the leper and before he heals this paralyzed man in chapter two? Jesus stayed outside in lonely places. Do you see the pattern? He gets close to the Father, and then he gets close to people. It was as if Jesus, like us, like Israel, had to get clear, get clear on God's promise, on who God is and what he does before he got close, to get close to his Father's will because he got close before he got close to the world's needs. And I think that's where Jesus' indignance for suffering was cultivated and grown because he was so aligned with the Father's will for the world to be free from it. But what does that mean practically for us? Well, the pattern of Jesus in Mark's gospel is brilliantly summed up by an essay written by C.S. Lewis called The Inner Ring. And what C.S. Lewis says is that when you join anything new, perhaps when you joined HDB or a new workplace, you often find yourself feeling like you're here. You're outside, you're outside the boundary line. And so you work really hard to make friends, to get to know people, to join a connect group. And then you, after time, realize that you've got through. But then you find out, actually, there's another group of people who are really, they're like great friends. They meet for coffee like in the week and they, they get on really well and they, they, they've got each other's numbers and you realize actually you're back outside the ring. And then you work really hard and you get to know them and you get their phone numbers and you, your Facebook friends and your Instagram buddies and you get through. And then you realize there's another ring. There's another group of people who at work who are even in an even more senior meeting that meets at a certain time that you didn't even know about and you suddenly realize that you're back out on the edge. And then you work really hard and you find, oh, I get, all, I get into that and you, you find your way to only realize that there's another ring. And the truth is that we can spend our whole lives trying to make ourselves more central. But the truth, the promise, 
that the, real, the, the reality of the Christian faith is that the, the moment you become a Christian, at the center of the universe, center of everything, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The moment you come to faith, the moment you put your trust in Jesus, you go right there. That you are, you are made more central than you could ever could be. That the moment you put your faith in Jesus, no longer do you have to fight for significance, fight to be at the center of things, fight to kind of become more central because you're here. The danger is if you don't realize you're here, you can just spin off and think, I give up. I can't get any more central. I'm not accepted. I'm not part of this. I'm out. But the moment you get this, suddenly your perspective moves from how can I make myself more central to asking the question, how can I get to those on the edges? You start to look out and think, ah, who's on this edge? Who's the person who's just joined the congregation who doesn't know anyone? Maybe I could look out for that person. What about the person at my workplace who, I don't know, looks sad or down today? Maybe something's been going on in their life. Maybe I can get close and ask them about that. Oh, why don't I have a, go to this edge here? Maybe there's someone on the street who I just think, oh, the Lord's speaking to me. I used to talk, talk to them about Jesus, but I'm not very confident. I'm just going to go for it because I can see they're on the edge. Maybe it's someone on the street who's homeless who can just, we can help, we can buy some food. Or maybe this edge, someone in your family that you haven't spoken to for years, you just think, I've given up. And actually, because you know you're here, you suddenly have the confidence and the, and the will to say, well, let's talk again. Do you see how the moment you get this, the moment you know that you're more central than you could ever be, you start to look to the edge. And so my question is, where do you, where do you spend time here? Where is your time this week coming up, tomorrow morning, tomorrow during the day, where you get clear on who God is and your position between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Where do you get clear? And then my next question is, where do you get close? Where's your edge? Maybe your edge is the workplace, your home, Maybe as you're walking down the street, the Lord will just point out something to you and someone you need to see. I think this is the model of Jesus, that he got close to the Father so he could then get close to the edge. And I think that's how we do it. We get clear and then we get close. And there are two steps to transformation, to get clear, to get close. And the results... If you look at the final words in Isaiah 61 verse 7 and the final experience of the leper in Mark's gospel, the end result is this, everlasting joy. Whilst Jesus was determined not to have a following based on his miracles, he told this man after he healed him to go and tell no one. And the joy of the man as he left, the joy of him no longer saying unclean, unclean, but I'm clean. I'm clean, suddenly meant that Jesus could not go into these towns that he wanted to go into. But the remarkable thing, and again, it's easy to miss this, is that Jesus did more for him than simply cleansing him of leprosy. Jesus swapped places with a leper. Whilst the leper goes from isolation to sharing his joy in the midst of crowds, Jesus goes from sharing his joy, preaching and teaching in Galilee, to obscurity, to isolation. That's how our passage ends. Jesus took the leper's place. He freed him from his shame, his disgrace, from all the things that separated him, that caused a divide between him and those around him. And the truth is, if we're really honest, we've got more in common with Israel and the leper than we might admit. We were once separate. We were once isolated from God. We were once far off. And in response, God got very clear by getting very close. 
born as a baby into the very town that he then healed this leper and before dying on a wooden cross to show us that not even death, not even my moment on Monday afternoon in the hospital was beyond transformation as he defeated death and rose from the grave. This is the transformation that Jesus offers, not just healing or hope, but everlasting joy with him into eternity, something that not even death can get its hands onto. Now just imagine, imagine for a second if we were to really live this out, if we were to get this tonight, to commit to these two very simple steps to transformation, to get clear on God's promise, on who God is, what God does, and therefore who we are in him, to move from indifference to indignance, and to get close to God, and to get close to people on the edges, people, places, systems, structures that need transforming. We could see the evangelization of the nation, the revitalization of the church, and the transformation of society. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Amen.